This week in retail news, Nike is pressing ahead with its consumer direct strategy. Meanwhile, Best Buy will begin piloting its ship from store hub model in the coming weeks. And this just in, the U.S. retail sector is recovering faster than expected with approximately 4% gains over two consecutive months. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, August 31st, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by guests David Hamat and Carl Holler. David is the Chief Executive Officer of Resolve Digital, a custom software development company specializing in Ruby on Rails, Spree, and Solidus for e-commerce. Carl is a partner, COC leader, and retail industry expert for IBM Global Business Services. Before becoming a partner at IBM, Carl was a retail executive for flagship brands such as Brooks Brothers and The Limited. David and Carl, thank you both for joining The Rundown today. Thank you for having us. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And we will first talk about a new report released by IBM covering the state of U.S. retail. So their 2020 U.S. retail index found that the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated retail trends by five years. This study indicates that digital consumer engagement is the new normal, with e-commerce sales accelerating from 13% growth in Q1 to 26% growth in Q2. What's more, the report revealed that consumers are redefining what is and isn't an essential good. The study shows that while clothing sales have declined, categories like groceries, alcohol, and home improvement materials have all seen a major boost. Carl? Being a partner at IBM, I wanted to turn this over to you first. You've been a retailer in your career. So when you see this data, what speaks to you? What should our retailers who are listening be taking away from this report? Sure. Thanks again for having me. So, you know, I think these findings and are quite interesting. This study is one that we put out regularly. We do regular forecasts of the retail economy and what's happening at specific retail lines of trade. And I would say at the macro level, the retail industry has recovered much faster than most people, frankly, including me, thought it would. You know, as of July, the non-auto retail and food service portion of the overall retail economy has had two straight months of over 4% gains versus last year. And across the kind of what I'll call the COVID period, the March through July, the business is only down 1.8%. So we're actually almost fully back to normal, taking into account the deep trough that everyone went into uh, back in March and April when all the shutdowns happened. That being said, it's still a world of haves and have nots. And I think for the retailers, this is where it starts to get really important. There are haves and have-nots right now in both consumers and in retailers. When we look at who has been most affected by the pandemic, it has been the more traditional, quote-unquote, blue-collar or service workers who have either seen more furloughs or seen more layoffs, while in general, more of the, quote-unquote, white-collar workers have been able to shift toward work from home and have largely seen, you know, except for health concerns that families may have had, have largely seen their economy, their own personal family economy do okay. We're seeing something very similar happening in the retail world. We're seeing that the retail industry has really bifurcated into essential versus non-essential retailers. 
that was really decided initially by the government back in March when they said, okay, drugstores, grocery stores, home improvement centers, e-com, et cetera, you guys can stay open and everyone else has to shut down. Since that time, those essential retail businesses have been growing at a mid double digit clip, you know, some in the mid teens, non-essential retailers, which are specialty apparel, furniture, department stores, and all the bars and restaurants, they're still down in aggregate 30% over the past five months versus what they were in 2019. And as we look forward, we see a lot of the continuation of those trends. And I think we're going to continue to see, as you mentioned in some of the channels that are successful, non-store is continuing to grow. And in fact, the rate of growth is accelerating. We're continuing to see a lot of strength in grocery. We're continuing to see strength in the mass and discount segment and the home improvement segment. Conversely, we're seeing continued challenges on the part of what I'll call most of the mall retailers and the other non-essential retailers. We also are seeing that the tailwinds that the government has been using to prop up the consumer economy for the past five months are going away. We've had roughly $1 trillion pushed into the consumer economy, either the direct the $1,200 one-time payments, the um, additional $600 per week in unemployment insurance, as well as the portion of the PPP funds that flowed through directly or indirectly to employees or into the consumer economy. That, as of right now, most of that money has gone away and we do not see, you know, a continuation of those tailwinds and potentially we see some pickup of headwinds around the election that's coming up, which can sometimes put uncertainty, especially if it's polarizing and relatively evenly divided. And of course, we also have the pandemic sitting out there that every time we think we're getting ourselves back to normal, we start seeing caseloads rise, which again, create uncertainty and fear among consumers, which causes them to depress their spending. So we're a little concerned that, that, you know, right now over the summer could be as good as it gets for the balance of the year. And there are not a ton of tailwinds that can prop up the entire retail economy. Mm -hmm. Great points, Carl. And I appreciate the parallels you drew between the consumer sector, the have and the have nots, and then the retail sector mirroring that same concept just with essential and non-essential because there are a lot of non-essential stores. You said in aggregate, they're still down by 30%, even though we are seeing home improvement and grocery and those type of retailers doing well, if not better than previous years. David, what's your take on some of the findings from the report and the things Carl just mentioned? So I was thinking a little bit about what Carl mentioned regarding essential and non-essential businesses. And what I'm seeing is a lot of the market share, a lot of the sales that the non-essential, more specialized businesses were doing have shifted to essential retailers that are large enough to offer a wider variety of products. And that's kind of unfortunate for the smaller, more specialized retailers. Another thing that we've seen is a lot of innovation going on. And I think that the larger retailers were just better prepared, right? And that includes a lot of the essential retailers. And so we're seeing smaller retailers trying to catch up. 
I have some thoughts that are not necessarily in the report, but a lot of the product categories that were traditionally bought in store have started to move online. I think groceries is one of the ones that comes to mind. You know, this has been something that has been moving online for years, but has probably accelerated significantly in the past few months. And that might not be coming back to stores. There's a portion of those sales that will stay online. You know, another thing that we've seen is a lot of new online shoppers that maybe weren't shopping online before and now are and are now comfortable with the concept and they might not be going back either. We see those same things among the clients we work with and in the data that we report on and track. All those same trends are happening. We have a consumer pulse study that we do just about every month. And we found that this was in April or May, only 65% of U.S. consumers were primarily shopping for groceries by going to the store, buying their groceries and bringing them home. You know, more than a third was shopping in a different way, whether that was shopping online and having it delivered, whether it was shopping online and curbside, or whether it was actually shopping in the store and then having things delivered to home after the fact. And I think that speaks a lot to what David was saying about this, you know, one, the innovation in the new ways people can shop, and also this gradual shift toward digital customer engagement, which has really accelerated over the past five months. Mm -hmm. And that's a great point because you said, David, some products, not only are people moving their shopping habits more online, but some products that were not traditionally purchased online have now moved online. And that's outside of grocery. Even with IBM, I was looking at some of the data and you guys are saying your client, Joanne Fabrics, they saw huge demand for face masks and it's a very tactile business they run and they, you know, people come in and they touch the fabrics and, and now all of a sudden they had, I, I wrote down, it was inventory inquiries rose four times above the last holiday season. That's huge. Yeah. And uh, I was just on with a CIO of a major uh, fashion company this morning and they are seeing the same things. And one of the things that all retailers have had to do, and David, I'm sure you're experiencing this with your clients as well, is scale up what they're doing with regard to digital customer engagement. The systems that they've had, they're used to peaking for November, December period, but now they have to peak. And it's not really a peak, it's just a surge. You know, mm. Now it's what they might have prepared for over a three-day, four-day, five-day period now is just kind of still the new abnormal, but over time, it may become the new normal. I think that's something that maybe doesn't affect digital infrastructure so much because it's easier to scale, but it especially affects stocks, right? And so I think that there have been uh, dramatic increases in certain inventories and decreases in others causing shortages and so on. And that's something difficult that a lot of retailers have had to deal with. Yeah, I would agree. And also the overall demand has changed. And also the localized demand has changed. And we're doing a lot of work right now helping clients get beyond you know, what I would call historical and seasonal replenishment patterns and historically based assortment planning and allocation patterns because they're seeing spikes and troughs in demand that could be 10, 20, 30% depending on what's going on in a given market. We think 
that those demand patterns will continue to be bumpy. And I'll just jump in here really quickly, Carl, because that's a huge topic we speak about with our retailer community is the localization of supply chains. I'll ask you guys one last question, then we'll move to the next topic. But David and Carl, is there anything you would tell retailers should be top of mind as we move into the holiday season? You know, the main thing I can think of is I'm not expecting consumers to rush back to shops, even as things normalize. And so I expect that the way I see it is we had a big increase in out-of-store shopping and I expect that a small portion of that increase will go back to in-store shopping, but I expect to see a continued online demand. From my perspective, retailers need to think about how they're going to focus their marketing efforts now that they're going to have more people shopping online and less people shopping in stores. Yeah, I, I would echo that. To me, it's kind of a case of fishing where the fish are. And that's both from consumers, how you're going to attract them, how you're going to engage with them how you're going to sell to and serve them, and how you're going to enable them to fulfill, to receive those goods. And also looking at the product categories, because there are big shifts in what people are buying. And I think in our own personal purchases and our families, we all see it. We now have had good five months of data coming out of the Bureau of Economic Analysis in terms of what consumers are spending more on and what they're spending less on. And we are seeing some declines in apparel in general and upticks in what I'll call big ticket discretionary purchases, whether that's things for the home, whether that's electronics devices, whether that's items to prepare for work from home or school from home, or frankly, whether it's what I'll call big ticket toys for the affluent, many of whom gave up their vacations and decided to spend that money on something for themselves and their family that they own rather than paying whatever four or five figures for a family vacation over the summer. That's uh, funny you mention apparel. I can see why people would be shopping less for apparel. I just wanted to add one last thing. I think there's an opportunity for retailers here. Physical stores are expensive and as shopping moves online and towards certain categories, there is an opportunity there to decrease the inventories and make store operations more efficient. We would agree. And we've been working a lot on how to help retailers bring things like computer vision, automation, robotics, and other really transformative capabilities into their stores so they can reduce the amount of manual task effort that their associates have to do. Stores have to be reinvented from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. Keyword reinvented. I think we can all agree on that. Carl, you mentioned electronics, and that was a great segue for our next topic, because like you said, people might be spending some of their discretionary income on big ticket items versus a vacation or holiday that they may have taken in the past pre-pandemic but first, I wanted to tell our listeners a little bit more about Vtex. Vtex is the first and only global, fully integrated end-to-end commerce solution with native marketplace and OMS capabilities. Vtex helps companies in retail, manufacturing, wholesale, groceries, consumer packaged goods, and other verticals to sell more, operate more efficiently, scale seamlessly, and deliver remarkable customer experience. Find out more about what Vtex can do for your business at www.vtex.com. 
So the next retailer is Best Buy. They've seen significant increases in sales during the pandemic. They posted a very strong second quarter earning with online sales shooting up 242% year over year. And to meet the dramatic shift toward online shopping, they will begin piloting a ship from store hub model this coming month. So they will use 250 of their stores to ship out significantly more online orders than regular locations and will support same and next day delivery. They're also continuing to add more third-party pickup locations for online orders with more than 16,000 locations already offering that. David, what do you think of Best Buy's ship from hub model? Oh, I, I love it just from a supply chain perspective. One of the traditional, one of the most well-known problems in supply chains is where do we keep inventory and how much of it, right? And I think that if you can move sales online, consumers really don't care where their product is coming from as long as it arrives quickly, right? If I buy from Best Buy, I don't know where they're shipping it from. And I frankly, don't mind where they ship it from as long as it gets here quickly. And so that gives Best Buy the opportunity to do a couple of things. One is they can centralize their inventory a little bit. Uh, that allows them to reduce it significantly. They don't need to have security stock in every single location. Another element is it allows them to specialize, right? So supporting online operations is one of many, many things that a Best Buy store does. And if they can have certain locations that are much more efficient at it, then that might help reduce their costs. It will increase the uh, learning speed. They'll be able to shift things around faster if they need to. I see it as a win for them, and I don't see any downsides to the consumer as long as they can keep their delivery times. And additionally, I think there might be some opportunities there to decrease shipping costs if they're able to figure out how to make that work for them. David, you and I have like exactly the same notes on this. I'm sorry. And I, and I was trying to, no, it's perfect. I mean, because I think it's reinforcing kind of what I was thinking about as well. And I was thinking about it. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. Columbus has five Best Buy stores. You know, and if you just think in each of those five stores, they had one on the floor and five in the back room. Maybe now they have two in the back room and they can keep 10 at the delivery depot at whichever of those stores becomes the delivery center for Columbus. They could see 15 to 20% reduction in inventory, which across Best Buy is huge. And then they lower their cost by concentrating the pick and pack. That saves from a supplies and a materials and a labor perspective. You're exactly right. It develops skills within that group in those delivery depot stores. And they're going to have fewer pickup locations. And they can probably start to bundle more items together, which, as you said, will reduce in the shipping costs. I mean, it's a real win-win. And as long as they're concentrating around kind of the markets, which I'm sure they are, they'll take one store in a given market in a multi-store market and turn that into a delivery depot. And that allows them to cover the country just as efficiently as they would have been doing so before. Yeah, you know, I, I'm sure the folks at Best Buy have investigated and researched this well, much better than we have, right? And so I'm sure they know that what they're doing. I do see it as a challenging operation, right? So yes, there are these opportunities to reduce costs, to make things more efficient. One thing we didn't mention was if you are able to kind of centralize your, your delivery operations, you don't need to have every product at every store. You can reduce your inventory significantly that way too. But I, you know, I think it's going to be challenging. I'm sure Best Buy can pull it off, uh, but it's not something 
I would see as an easy solution. Are you guys surprised, though, at all that we're seeing a lot of stores rolling out smaller formats and Best Buy, the average Best Buy store is still 40,000 square feet? I'm not surprised to see stores rolling out smaller formats. I expect Best Buy also is going to roll out some smaller formats. We're seeing a ton of experimentation among retailers of all types. Outside of bankruptcy, it's tough to unwind in a material way a thousand store retail portfolio. You've got rent deals in Mm -hmm. place, you've got leases, you've got build out costs, you're still paying off the capital costs that have been amortized over a certain lifespan. I think this is a smart, practical move to address a need, save cost, save inventory, free up cash to start investing in other areas. I think that a few years ago, Best Buy did start the omni-channel model and, and really, really, really put time and effort into pushing sales outside of their stores or you know, through pickup and so on. But I think that traditionally, part of buying at Best Buy has been going to the shop and just looking around, right? And I think that's something that's difficult to step away from once you're already invested in it. And so I think that that's part of why it's taken Best Buy so long to do this. Frankly, you know, I would expect the ship from hub model to be pretty much universal. It's what makes sense from a a theoretical perspective. But once you have something up and running and it works, it's difficult to shift away from that. Mm -hmm. Not only are you saying not only from the business perspective, but also what consumers expect from you? I think what consumers expect from you and from a business perspective. You know, these, these are changes that take years to implement and a lot of money. And so once you have a model that works, it's hard to step away from it. I'm thinking of why didn't Blockbuster move online in time? It, it was very difficult for them. They had, I don't remember if it was hundreds or thousands of locations and a big investment in them. And so it was easier for smaller players to make that move. Yeah, exactly. You have senior executives who have spent 20 or 30 years perfecting the skills that, that got them to that role who tend to own the budgets and tend to be compensated or bonused based on driving that portion of the business. And sometimes it is. It's very difficult. I found in my own experiences on the corporate side, it is difficult to innovate through and within an existing business model. You know, that being said, we are seeing a lot of it. We're seeing it among companies like Best Buy, you know, other big retailers, Walmart, Target, even the department stores, Macy's and Nordstrom are both doing and trying a lot of very innovative things. And we're seeing it on on the branded side as well. Yeah, I think this is definitely consumer-driven innovation, though. You know, it's clear that consumers are more and more buying outside of stores. And it's up to the retailers to catch up. Yeah, exactly. We still are, you know, it depends on what numbers you look at, but we still have somewhere around twice as much retail square footage per person in this country than the next most densely populated country or densely retail stored country. And now for some good news. Dick's Sporting Goods reported impressive quarterly earnings and sales growth last week, saying consumers flocked to its website for hiking gear, kayaks, weights, and activewear to stay busy during the pandemic. American pizza chain Papa John's reported an estimated system-wide sales increase of 24.2% in August. 
Papa John's is continuing to grow its digital platforms, with 70% of orders coming in digitally and 3 million new customers added in the second quarter. The next retailer we're going to discuss is Nike. They're doubling down on their consumer direct strategy and reportedly closing nine of its wholesale accounts with retailers like Belk, Dillard's, and Zappos. A spokesperson for Nike told members of the press the wholesale exit comes as part of their bold vision to create a, quote, marketplace of the future. Also included in their strategy, Nike plans to open 200 new small format stores and work with select strategic partners. Earlier this summer, their CEO, John Donahue, told analysts that Nike aims to conduct 30% of its own total product sales by 2023. Carl, will reducing the wholesale accounts to focus on direct-to-consumer change Nike for the better? I think it's another good move. It's an offensive move. It's not a defensive move. It's part of what Nike has been doing over the past, you could say three to five years. But if you go back to when they first opened Nike Towns 20-ish years ago, maybe even more, taking control of their own distribution, managing the shopping experience, uh, making the store environment where you buy Nike's brand enhancing these are plays that Nike has been doing for a while. And, and frankly, this move from a brand that was traditionally wholesale distribution into more of a vertical model is something that actually I'm surprised it's taken Nike this length of time to get there. Because we saw brands like Coach and Ralph Lauren and Burberry, you know, they were all traditional wholesale-based businesses and I believe each of them now generate the majority of their sales through their own retail stores or did before a lot of their stores closed, but through their own, you know, I'd say the controlled retail or a controlled online environment rather than through wholesale. And I bet Nike is going to blow away the 30% through its own stores and its own e-com. I would imagine they're going to get closer to 50 by 2023. I think this is a, you know, it's a strong move. They're the strongest brand in athletic footwear. And it's like the media business where content is often king. And Nike has the great content, which is that great product. And that they've realized that's what's driving the customer to buy. They don't need to be in every footwear store and every department store and a bunch of independent, you know, quasi discount stores for people to find them. They have plenty of ways to go out and touch customers. Um, and frankly, the fact that they get both the retail and the wholesale margin gives them a good funding source to enable that growth to happen. In my mind, it's an interesting move. First thing is, it seems to be working. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen sales are up, earnings per share up. It seems to be, they, they seem to be rolling out successfully. And one key element here is differentiation, right? So they are pulling out of shops that don't allow them to differentiate their brand and trying to replace that with sales where they are able to really enhance their brand, the way they communicate with their consumers. If I had thought about this before seeing it rolled out and working, I would have been concerned about losing non-loyal customers, right? So I'm one of those customers. I have Nike sneakers. I didn't set out to buy them. I went out to buy sneakers and I just happened to 
you know, find some Nike ones that I liked. And so moving out of these larger retailers that sell multiple brands, that would be my concern. That's the consumer they might be missing out to, the consumer that's not going to walk into a Nike shop. This speaks to their brand loyalty. They have a lot of consumers who will go directly to Nike who only buy Nike shoes. But there are a lot of people who pop into a Belk or Dillard's, or, you know, not Zappos since it's online. But do you think that it will really impact those retailers they had wholesale accounts with? The retailers, I think the impact is much bigger on the retailers that Nike has dropped than it will be on Nike. I agree. I think that a lot of them count on having brands like Nike to bring the consumers into their shops. So the impact is probably much worse for the retailers than it is for Nike. Nike will probably quickly recover that. And now they have the extra margin, right? So that helps. And one other thing, you can bet that now that Nike has shown they will play hardball with a major retail chain, Macy's, Nordstrom, Foot Locker, the chains that are still important to Nike, when Nike calls and says, hey, we want a better in-store shop, or we want a bigger department, or we want more sales associates, you can bet that those chains are going to listen because they've seen Nike's not afraid to drop someone. One concern I have, I have friends who are runners and they all wear Asics. That's their brand of choice when buying running shoes. And Nike is interesting because it's not only sportswear, but it's also fashion wear, right? And in that sense, they have a much broader audience. And I'm wondering if those consumers that aren't looking for something very specific will be attracted to the Nike shops. I found one thing, you know, when I looked at the list of who they dropped, I think you can look at many of them and say, okay, I can understand why they would drop those. I thought Zappos, I'd love to hear both of your opinions on this. I thought the fact that Zappos was included was very notable. And they didn't say anything more about it. I'm not sure if this was a, a shift to consolidate more of digital commerce onto nike.com. Although I noticed, you know, Nordstrom is still selling plenty of Nikes on nordstrom.com. Or if it was the fact that Amazon owns Zappos and Nike had already pulled off of Amazon. Mm. But I found Zappos carried over 3,500 Nike items across men's, women's, and kids. To pull that off, and Nike had its own shop on Zappos, I wonder if there's something more behind that decision. That is curious, Carl, because Zappos does well. I mean, they are a brand that stands up on issues just like Nike. It seems like they had a great thing going, but maybe it is the Amazon play. What do you think, David? I'm thinking not necessarily about Nike, but uh, of, of commerce in general. And so I think that in the past, distribution was a big, big challenge. And with things moving more and more towards the online model, a lot of brands that wouldn't have wanted to take care of distribution and retail selling in the past because it wasn't their specialty, let's just put it that way, are suddenly finding that it's accessible to them. And so Amazon is interesting because, and I guess Zappos too, what they've done is they've done a lot of marketing to get people to their shop, right? And that's something Nike can compete with. So maybe there's just no reason for Nike to sell through those other online retailers. They're really not providing anything for them. You know, Nike's got the marketing it needs. They've got the brand recognition. And they also have the capability of servicing their own sales and deliveries. Well, do you think Nike's biggest competitors would make a similar move down the road and follow suit? Or do they just have so much more 
competitive advantage that they're, you know, that they can't? I think it comes down to the power of the brand, really. I think, you know, if you think about, I'll draw some parallels. You mentioned, David, you know, Nike is performance, but also fashion. If you think about the parallels of the fashion industry, the most powerful brands in fashion are Hermes and Louis Vuitton. They both only sell through their own stores. When you see a Louis Vuitton shop in a department store, that is a concession you know, that is still owned and operated by the brand. If a brand is strong enough, then the brand will continue to develop and operate more of its own distribution, both digital and physical. That's a very interesting thing you brought up. I think with high-end luxury brands, part of the thing is they need to be able to offer a flawless shopping experience because that's part of buying the brand, right? And I think that's the direction Nike is pushing here. It's saying, hey, you know what? We don't want our shoes to just be in a box on a shelf among hundreds of other brands and other boxes. We want our brand to be different, to look different, and to communicate differently. And I'm not sure who Nike's biggest competitor is. Uh, I could say Puma is is probably a second or third in that Adi- segment. Adidas. Adidas, that's right. I don't know if they could pull it off. That's a, that's a good question. I think Nike is in a very special position. They are definitely the most well-known brand in that segment. Well, maybe it's an opportunity either for their competitors to consider following in their footsteps or maybe take some of their positioning with the wholesale accounts and and move their product that way. But we'll see because nothing is promised with the pandemic at play. Carl and David, it was great to have you both on the show for the first time, and I hope to have you back. Thank you so much for having us. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks very much. This has been a great discussion. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.